All right, well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Obtaining the Glory of Christ. Obtaining the Glory of Christ. Now, this word obtaining, it refers to, when you, especially in the Greek language, it refers to the permanent acquisition of something. The permanent acquisition of something or gaining something in a secure and, again, permanent manner. Gaining something in a secure and permanent manner or the permanent acquisition of something. You're obtaining or getting something in a very secure way that you didn't have previously. And as you think about faith in Christ, it results in every believer acquiring things positionally, spiritual, your spiritual position I'm talking about now, that you never had before. That's what your faith in Christ is connected to, that you have these things, you're identified with these things, you gain these things positionally that you didn't previously have. You're seen in a new light. You have a new identity. And that identity, of course, is to be in Christ. And one characteristic of Christ as you gain an identity that's not your own, but that your faith in Christ results in you having an identity that is now associated with his, and as we think about the, one of these characteristics that you gain is as you're now identified with Christ, every believer is now not only identified with him in general, but we're identified with him specifically. But one specific aspect of our identification, of course, you could say many, but say another one, for example, is Christ's righteousness. I'm now identified with this as his righteousness is credited to my account. But the thing we're talking about this, is, this morning is obtaining the glory of Christ. The believer, the moment of his salvation is now put in, he's placed into Christ, and he becomes identified with Christ's glory. He now is given a, a purpose to live life in a way that would keep the spotlight and the focus on Jesus Christ. He says that Christ will then be glorified in us and will be glorified in him. We touched on that recently in our series here on the Apostle Paul's prayers. But this is a byproduct of faith, it's a completed positional reality. You are, you have obtained the glory of Christ through that identification process with him the moment that you're saved. As you think about things that are fixed facts, this is one of them. It's a completed positional reality. Now, as you think about other aspects of that, you're rich. You have this rich inheritance in Christ that is already a settled fixed fact. It's not a question of, do I have access to that wealth? I have become an heir of Christ, an heir of God through Christ. And I've inherited this rich inheritance. So the question isn't, isn't, is that true? It's a settled fact. The question is always, will you appropriate the riches and live in light of your position in Christ? You already have the riches. You already have the position. So Paul in his prayer that we're going to look at here, the first part of it this morning anyway, Paul addresses the Thessalonians' position here in the first half of this prayer. Then in the second half that Lord willing will look at next week, he's going to address the practical implications of that position, this newfound position in Christ that the Thessalonian believers now have as a result of their faith. So again, this morning we're going to try to look at this positional part of it. It's pretty heavy. And so Let's take a closer look and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. I will say that this is, this is one of, I would say, the most hotly debated and misunderstood doctrines that we, can, we could find in the Bible. It's heavy sledding in some ways, so... Young people and old people alike, I guess, buckle up. 
But as we think about this, we touched on it not that long ago as we spoke to some of the same ideas. And if you want to get more information on this, listen to the message about Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read these two verses so we'll have our full context this morning about this position that the believer has in Christ. Verse 13 begins with, but we, Paul now again still talking about himself and others that he's praying corporately along with, that he's with Silvanus and Timothy, and together they're praying, and they've recorded a number of prayers so far, but here we have a prayer. We are bound to give thanks. He's talking about a prayer of thanksgiving, expression to God directly of an attitude of gratitude. We're bound to give thanks to God always for you. Now, how does he describe them as brethren beloved by the Lord? Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So some of you think, how is that going to be difficult to get through? We'll, we'll start breaking it down here, though, this morning. He starts off with this idea of we are bound. Now, that word bound just means we're obliged or obligated to give thanks to God always for you. Now, he's not talking, he's not using that in a literal sense. He's, he's using it in the sense of as we think about what God has done for us. Now, really consider this for yourself here this morning. As you think about all that God has done, all that he's done for you, let's not make it about a generic thing, all that God has done for you, how much he loves you, how much he has undertaken to provide for your every need. As you see God working in the lives of people that you care about and you're supposed to love your fellow believers, but as you think about other brothers and sisters in Christ in your life and you see God's work in their life, and you see that it's all done as a part of God's, as a byproduct of God's grace, as a byproduct of God's love, as a byproduct of God's compassion, without any regard for whether you deserve Him to be working in your life or whether they deserve Him to be working in their lives. You see that it's all a grace operation. It's not earned, it's not merited, and it can't be worked for. As you see that, what other natural conclusion or or response could you have? That's what he means by obligated here. It's the only real response I could have to seeing how awesome God is and how he undertakes in people's lives. The only rational response to that would be to give him thanks. Like, how often do we just thank God? Not enough, I can tell you that. And Paul is saying we always are thanking God. Now, he's going to give some specifics about it in this context because he's talking about what God has done in their lives. And then he's going to be praying about what he hopes that God would, his desire that God would continue to do in their lives in a practical way. He starts again with the positional realities. That's how, that's how you find the pattern to be, by the way, just as you're reading through a lot of the New Testament epistles, is that there's going to be a discussion about your position, then followed by some discussion about the practical ramifications of that position in Christ. But it, it helps to understand that they're, they're two separate things. Now, as we think about being bound to give God thanks always for you, that focuses on people. It's not on, I'm bound to give God thanks always for, and then some individual quality in myself, some giftedness that, he, that, he's, that he's given to me, some, some temporal world-related provision of God. Now, should you thank God for that? Yes. But again, these are, and Paul, does Paul thank God for that? The answer is yes. I can't say there's, he doesn't give a lot of evidence of that in his, what he records in his prayers, but 
these, these prayers are, are not to be taken as all of Paul's thought process and all of Paul's prayers. These are the prayers that are recorded about groups of believers because they're letters that are written to groups of believers. So naturally, those are the types of prayers that he's telling them about because they're focused on them. They relate to them. So he's not trying to just write some kind of a, a thesis on all of his thoughts about prayers or all of the thing that he, things that he prays about, but in any event. So Paul likely does, but here again he's focused on people. Now, note how any believer, any fellow believer can rightfully be described. Think, th- think about this description here. We're, we're bound to give thanks to God always for you. Now, how are they described? Brethren, beloved by the Lord. There's two main parts to that brethren. One, Paul sees them as his faith siblings, people that he is close to in the family of faith. Two, he sees them and describes them as those that are loved by or beloved by God. And the question is, as you see that, you could pass over that easily, and we we should have for the sake of time, because I'm going to probably need that time when this is all said and done. But is this how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a brother that is loved or beloved by the Lord? Now, every, all the, every other alternate view that you could have of your own identity, it falls woefully short of this in terms of giving you any real sense of purpose or peace. Giving you any joy, really. You could see yourself in many different ways. You could form your identity in many different ways, but the primary identity that the believer has is that they're in Christ. That you're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That you're now a part of the family of God. You've been brought into something as a result of your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that you weren't a part of before. And God says, and I'll never let you go. Isn't that awesome? I'm the one that's loved by God. Now think of the two parts of this. You're part of this big family of believers, the brethren, but you are loved desperately by God. Now think about how John even says this in John 13, 23. He, he understood this. Now there was leaning on Jesus, now who's writing this? John is writing this about himself. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. See, he doesn't even identify himself by name. He identifies himself as the one who Jesus loved. That is powerful. Is that how you see yourself? As the one who's beloved by God? That should supersede any other thing that you would think about yourself. And yet, whether it's positive or critical, you're the one that is loved by God. Now, what is Paul specifically thankful for? That these believers were fellow recipients of the salvation provided by God and access through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's going to be our takeaway here as we talk about what do we mean by this phrase, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's what he's saying he's thanking God always about, that that was what God had determined to do. Now, how is God's provision for them described specifically? Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Now, from the beginning here, there's some dispute, 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 not a word. (laughs) You You could debut something, but anyway, we're off track. From the beginning, there's some dispute about what exactly that's referring to, but there's no dispute that it's clearly referring to some time in the past. At some time in the past. Now, my takeaway is that it likely refers to the formation 
of God's eternal plan in eternity past, that it's at a point in eternity past, God has an eternal plan. We can't even understand eternity, so it's hard to even think about, like, we think in terms of very finite, we're, we're constrained by time, but God is not constrained by time at all. He's an eternal God. He's a limitless God. So we can't put human limits on God, and we can't really understand even the concept of eternity, this idea that there would be no beginning. It would, God would have always been, but yet that's what the Bible describes about God, that God was eternal, And so we're thinking at some point in eternity past, God had an eternal plan, especially as it related to maybe any number of things, but as as in this context, it related to mankind. And so whether that was in the beginning or from the beginning, and it was a reference to even the first time that they were confronted with the gospel message, which some people believe that that's what it's referring to, either way, it was at some point in the past. Now, from the beginning... God chose you for salvation. And those are the words that have caused so much consternation amongst many different, very well-intentioned men and, men and women of faith. And it's, it's something that there's a, quite a bit of disagreement about. Now, there's some takeaways that we have to have in order to have a, a complete or clear or consistent view of the Bible. So you could kind of have some disagreement with this and I think we could just agree to disagree but there's some dis, there's some levels of that disagreement that you couldn't support without butchering or t- or taking and making of no importance other passages of scripture so we think about as you want to deal with difficult passages in your bible and you, you see people have differing opinions about that passage. When we think about some of the primary rules of biblical interpretation, some of them, though, are the, probably the most important one, I would say, is that the Bible properly understood doesn't contradict itself. So if we have one God who is a perfect God who never makes mistakes, never says things wrong, if we were to be the author of the Word of God, then we could, under, we could understand that we would contradict ourselves. We are hypocrites. We contradict ourselves all the time, intentionally and unintentionally. But God isn't that. God never contradicts himself because he's a perfect God and he breathed every word of Scripture. That's what the Bible says, that all Scripture was given. It was given by the inspiration or the being God-breathed of God and it was profitable. So all of it, not some of it, all of it, every word. And so you think about that concept then you can't have a position where you say God is contradicting himself between this passage and the next. So you're looking from, for some cohesiveness or the ability to have a perspective or take a view that isn't then countermanded or undermined by some other passage in scripture that you would look at. And so that's something that you would be well, you'd be well advised to keep in mind when you come to these hard passages is that the Bible properly understood doesn't contradict itself. The second thing is that you don't interpret unclear passages with other unclear passages. You don't understand unclear passages by focusing on unclear passages. You understand unclear passages by focusing on clear passages. And so you don't take a clear passage and now make it muddy because of your twisted view on an unclear passage. You leave the clear passages clear and you seek to then inform or take that, the clarity that you find in those verses and you try to take that into and use it as a tool and an assistance in understanding the more difficult passages. So with that being said, God chose you for salvation. The meaning of this phrase has caused some confusion. Now this, this, this phrase, God chose, it refers to 
God's election, decision, or determination as it relates to his eternal redemptive plan. Now, when you say God chose, that's all it's talking about. God made a decision. When you go and choose or you elect, the the word choose and election are used together uh, synonymously in the Bible. There's two different words. One is only used twice. One is used more often. But those two words used in conjunction are talking about a decision-making process by God. And so as you think about that, you could think about even casting a ballot and you talk about an election. You make an election. You elect to choose option one or option two, but you you make a decision. So God had or he made a determination or decision as it related to his eternal redemptive plan. That's generally what this word means. So we have to start with that general understanding of that. And then you say, God chose you Who is that? So when you say God chose, we know what that means now. He made a decision or determination, but then he chose you in what sense? In what sense did God choose you? And and who is you? And that's where there's quite a bit of disagreement. But the takeaway from my perspective is that you see a couple of things about this. God chose you. This is you in the plural sense. We'll get to that in a second. But God determined in the past to save every person who would choose to respond to the gospel message in the present. Now, you didn't exist in the past in the sense that your life has a finite span of time. You had a day that your life began. Your life is going to have a day that it comes to an end in terms of your physical time here on earth, though you'll live on in terms of your soul and your spirit. So live on forever in heaven if you're a child of God, and they'll live on forever if you're an unbeliever in the lake of fire and hell. So everybody's going to have an eternal existence, but their physical body has a finite period of time that they're going to exist in that form, in that, in that body. And so you think about God chose in the past, he determined in the past that he would save or rescue. We're talking first and foremost, the major theme, the primary theme of the Bible is God's plan of redemption. So God had this plan to redeem those who were lost, those who were alienated from him, those who were estranged from him. That was a part of his eternal plan. And as he determined to save people who were facing destruction, people that apart from him would perish, which is a word we see often in the Bible, that if you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not perish. You can see it on the screen here on the wall of our church. You won't perish. What does perish mean? To uh, to be a fatality in this, to be one who is lost in spending eternity apart from God in the lake of fire. And God set in motion as there was this sin that, go back to the very beginning, you see God has this union with man. Uh, he's, he's, he's in lockstep with man. The relationship hasn't been tainted by sin. But what happens? Sin comes into the picture. Then an option is presented by Satan. Man is given free will, free choice. Man is given the opportunity to either choose God or reject God. So in that free will, in that free choice, exercising that decision-making process, man determines that, in fact, the lie of Satan is more appealing than God's truth. And so he exchanges God's truth for Satan's lies and Satan effectively is saying you could be God, you don't need God, God doesn't really love you, God is holding back from you, he doesn't really have your best interests at heart and so man falls for that lie. That's the same lie that we're falling for still today. Every time that we choose to live life apart from God, what are we really saying? I don't need God. 
I can do this without God. Life is better without him. Or God isn't really on my side. I'm not convinced that God is for me, that God is good, that God is wonderful, that God is awesome. I'm in this moment, I'm convinced that there's something else better. That, that's the lie of the world always, that there's something else better or you yourself are, can operate independently from God and still somehow thrive. And the reality is that you can't. So from the beginning, man makes this choice to choose self to choose this idea of life apart from God instead of continuing to depend completely on God. Well, now this relationship between man and God is broken down. It's tainted by this barrier of sin that has now gotten the way. So we hear, we see in the book of Romans that by one man, sin entered the world and death came with sin. Death speaking to this separating effect that sin had between a holy and righteous God and now a man who was tainted, mankind that was tainted with sin. But by one man, sin entered the world and what came with it? Death, spiritual death, which then led to physical death. Dying spiritually, you will die physically. And so we have this separation of sin now that has caused this estrangement from God. And then death, it says, spread to all men because what? Because all have sinned. So we're sinners by association with being born into the race of Adams, but we're sinners by choice. There's no one here, there's not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who is even seeking after God. So we have this, we have this problem where, where the relationship between God and man is now broken and there's this barrier of sin that is separating sinful man from a holy and righteous God. So that's why the story of the Bible, I mean, remember that the Bible is ultimately a cohesive story. It's not a collection of randomness. It's God's story about how paradise was lost. There was estrangement here where there was this alienation between man and God. There's irreconcilable in a sense and God set about a plan to reconcile or make right this estrangement that had been caused because of sin separating mankind that God loved desperately from him and his holiness and righteousness. So the story of the Bible is not just a story of nothing where you start reading it like, every time I try to read this, I get kind of lost. I don't understand what it's about. That can happen if you're zoomed in this close to it. All you can see is this one particular story that in it, without any more general context, doesn't seem to make any specific sense because of some of the difference in culture, difference in God's way of dealing with men over time. We call that dispensations. But because of God's differences in administration, because of differences culturally, because of differences in terms of just how much time has gone by, uh, words don't have the exact same meaning. Yeah, it's easy to zoom in so far that you're like, I don't know how this adds to the storyline. But if you zoom back out and you say, this is a cohesive story about how God needs to reconcile and redeem mankind that was estranged from him as a result of their sin. And so now as we start to break down that storyline and we track that storyline and we come through the Bible, we see that God has to or determined in eternity past that he wasn't going to allow that estrangement to persist. He wasn't going to leave man in a place of hopelessness where they were going to have to live eternity apart from him. They were going to have to pay the just, the just penalty for their own decisions and they were going to have to stay separate from God forever. So when we talk about God electing, God determined to save anybody who would grab a hold of his plan of rescue. So he said, I'm going to rescue mankind. The storyline is about how God determined how, that he would rescue mankind, but how much of mankind? 
Well, he was interested in rescuing all of mankind because how much of the world does God love? If God so loved the world generally, all of the world, and we'll get to that in a moment. So he made a way of rescue available for all mankind. That was his determination. But he also elected, he made a decision, a determination, that he would only save those who would accept the rescue that was being offered to them. So did God offer his way of rescue to every man, woman, and child on planet Earth from the beginning to the end? And the answer is yes. Does every man, woman, and child accept the means of rescue, the way of rescue that God has offered to them? And the answer is no. But God elected, he determined to save everyone who would grab a hold of, put their trust and their confidence in the way of rescue that he made available. So one way that you can think about election is that God determined in the past to save every person who would choose to respond to the gospel message. The gospel message, of course, just referring to the good news message about how God has made it possible for man to be reconciled to him or redeemed from the bondage that he was in to sin or the consequence or the debt that was owed because of his sin. So to save him from the penalty that he was facing from his sin or because of his sin. Now I'm trying to start off with just more of, a, a, more of a, the general overview here, but this is, the, this is how we should understand, I take that back, this is how I understand what God, what God is talking about in terms of election. Now you think about this because this is the, something that people miss. Now if you want more about this, I don't know if it's in the bookstore right now, it may or may not be, but a guest speaker that we've had here in the past named Ron Merriman, who has written a number of different books, he really advocates for this position, uh, but he talks about this idea that when you look at these passages relating to God choosing or God electing as it relates to electing to make or to save people who would respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ, he notes that in nearly every example in the Old Testament. So every time that that word or that topic is discussed in the Old Testament, he doesn't even think there's an exception. That almost every time in the Old Testament that this is discussed, it's discussed in the sense of a corporate election. This idea that God chose to rescue collectively a group of people, but a group of people who would be identified with a head, a head within that group of people, a leader, if you will, and so he talks about it in terms of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They became the heads of, or the, the formation of, Jacob especially became known as Israel, became the heads of a nation, the nation of Israel. And God's discussion, discussion about election always relates to Israel in a corporate sense. This idea that God had a plan or a purpose or he made a decision as it related to the national salvation of Israel and an elective purpose of Israel to be lights to the Gentile nations around them, that they could be set apart and sanctified and holy, not for just the purposes of standing out by itself, but to stand out for a reason, to stand out so that it would attract people to the goodness and the holiness, the righteousness, the nature and the character of God, that it would attract people to that. Now, did that, did that happen at times? Yes, but is it hard to find times where they were very successful at that mission? And the answer is yes, but that they were viewed as having been elect or chosen for a specific purpose or for a specific reason. And that was to be light bearers for God as emissaries, if you will, ambassadors for him. Now, if you can think about Rahab and the story of Jericho from the Old Testament, you'll see maybe one example of what was intended to be true 
on a more widespread basis, but wasn't true as often as it could have been. Now, what was true about Rahab? Did Rahab, through the testimony that had gone before the nation of Israel, did she come to have some awareness of God that she otherwise would not have had, the one true God? The answer is yes. You may recall that she talks about how she had heard about what the God of the Israelites had done. Now, unfortunately, she hadn't heard about the wonderful witness, the wonderful testimony, the wonderful uh, trusting of God of the nation of Israel as they had been this wonderful ambassadors for Jesus Christ, but she had heard sort of vicariously through the nation of Israel about what God had done for them. And what did that cause her to do? It caused her to accept or to have trust in the accuracy or the truth of what that information that she had received caused her to believe that this is the true God. And so she then helped out the spies, right? And she does that because she's convinced of the truth that she had been confronted with about God. Now, had she been confronted with a lot of truth about God? No, but salvation always is discussed in the context of mankind responding to the truth they have. She responded to the truth that she had and she is listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Pretty amazing, right? So now, Paul, who is, what's his background? He's Jewish. So you take, the con- in the context, you take Paul, who's a Jewish person, that would have been his understanding of election. It would have been more focused on corporate national election. It wouldn't have been focused on individuals so much as you can't have, of course, a nation without individuals in it, but it had been focused on this election or determination by God to task a corporate group of individuals with a mission under the headship of, in the case of the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham, the covenant promises that were made to him, which then drive the storyline of God as a promise-keeping God. He made promises. He's going to keep them. You track that story of the covenants that God made to Abraham through the Old Testament, and all of a sudden, a lot more of this makes sense. Now, I already can see I'm glazing over a bunch of eyes here. Somebody asked me, is this going to be an exciting message? I said, uh, it depends what kind of a person you are, I guess. <laughs> so now we take that, again, I didn't come up with this. There's a whole, there's a whole um, subs- subset of people that believe the focus needs to stay on, corporate, on the corporate nature of election. So in the, in the New Testament passages then, almost every, ele- every passage that's talking about election in the context of salvation is used in a corporate sense, in a plural sense. And so we have that here. You again here is plural. It's referring to a collective group of believers. He's not talking to any one believer and saying God chose you specifically for salvation. He chose you collectively as a group of believers who were placed in Christ. And so who's the, where's the headship? Uh, if, you, if you take that approach, where would the headship side of that be in the New Testament understanding of election? Well, it would be Christ. God chose to save people through Christ and to place them by way of identity in Christ. And so that your salvation is not tied to you in a vacuum. It's tied to you now being identified with Jesus Christ, the church collectively. So this body of believers that is assigned or God's eternal plan was that in this intermission in the New Testament where the nation of Israel had rejected the Messiah. God says, I'm going to build the church. There's going to be this intermission. In the future, I'm going to fulfill the remaining promises that I have to Israel. But for the time being, I'm going to proclaim myself through this new concept, this new construct, this body of believers that is collectively going to be made up of every single person who chooses to put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now that collective group of people is referred to as being the church of Christ. You're put positionally in Christ. Your identity is to be in Christ. And so God chose this group collectively to what? To sing his praises, to magnify his name, to be ambassadors for him, to make him bigger, to magnify him, to exalt him, to put the focus on him. Well, doesn't that sound very similar to what God is trying to do with the nation of Israel? See the cohesiveness here? Now, if you take this understanding into the New Testament, now when you view these passages, you're not going to get sucked into this idea that the primary focus is on any individual. You're going to see that the primary focus is on all people and how God calls people into this elective this elective mission that he has for us to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Every believer, anyone who would, could get in on that. And that was a mixture of what? Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, male and female, that anybody who would choose to put their trust in Jesus Christ could be a part of that. That was God's elective decision or determination. And you're going to find that throughout Scripture. Now, there is, I believe, that that may be over you know, the, the collective part of it isn't intended to mean there's no individual aspect to that. You couldn't have a collective body corporately of believers if you didn't have individuals who had made a decision to accept Jesus Christ. So you think about this, all who will come and drink of the water that I offer you. You know, anybody could come and be saved. So God is calling us, in a sense, to be saved. Not some men, but all men to be saved. Not because he's calling only those that he chose individually. He wanted all men to be saved. And well, I'll prove that definitively to you, that you'd have to throw out a lot of your Bible to take a different view on that. So the cross of Christ was intended to stand up tall, as, as the serpent was lifted up in the, in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why was Christ symbolically lifted up? He, you lift something up so that what? So that all can see it. Not, not just that some can see it, that all can see it. And then once all have seen it, now who's, who's, uh, whose court is, is the ball in? The ball's now in your court. I, I've lifted myself up so that all could see me. Now, whose, whose court is it? It's your court. Your move. Will you respond to that? Will you accept that? Will you put your trust in that? Or will you not? He makes that offer to all men. He couldn't say the things he says about all men if it was some predetermined group of men and some other group had been predetermined to be lost forever. So, here's how I would say it. God's election did not involve choosing specific people to be saved, but rather choosing to save every individual who would respond in faith to the offer of salvation. The focus of God's elective determination is less on the individual, but more so on the collective group of individuals who through faith would be saved and be placed positionally in Christ and become a part of the larger corporate body of Christ. This is how I would say it. Now, we'll touch on a couple of verses about this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us corporately, 
plural there, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our access to this wasn't in a vacuum. Our access to God was through the, a person, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he places us in Christ. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're now identified with Christ. Just as, now here's the same word again, just as he chose us in him, chose us again, plural. Chose every believer who in the future would put their trust in Jesus Christ, he chose or determined before the foundation of the world, he determined in advance, he made a decision that I'm gonna save every single one of them who becomes identified with my son by putting their faith in the finished work of my son, his death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf, I'm gonna place them in Christ and I'm gonna save them. With what purpose in mind? With a purpose in mind that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, meaning we were now identified with the glory of Christ. Same thing here, obtaining the glory of Christ, that they should be holy and without blame. You are holy and without blame positionally. You are, you have obtained, you've acquired in a permanent manner, in a secure manner, you have obtained the glory of Christ. Same thing here. You see, though, how it's tied to our identification with Christ and our faith in what Christ did for us. That's what he decided. He didn't decide, he didn't look at a mass of future humanity and he didn't sit there with his eyes closed throwing darts trying to see who would get saved and who wouldn't get saved and saying, I'm just going to randomly elect this certain group of people to be saved and then by default I'm going to select all of the rest of them for damnation. That would violate God's justice in every way possible. That would not be consistent with God's, with a statement that God is righteous and holy, that God is fair. That, that wouldn't be fairness. Now, other people explain this in the sense that if it is referring to the election, see, I don't have a problem if you think there is more of an individual aspect to this. The idea still there would be God elected to save all that he knew in advance would put their trust in Jesus Christ. The focus is still not fully on God's having chosen four people. The focus is on God having known in advance that people would respond with their own free will to God's offer of salvation. And so when you talk about foreknowledge, God knows in advance, but he doesn't predetermine the outcome. And so as you think about this body of Christ or this concept of being put into something, this is why I take a little bit more of the corporate vibe because in Ephesians four eleven through 12, he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, plural, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Very often, although God has to have an interest in people, and he does, his interest in them is then viewed in light of their collective participation in the body of Christ, in the church, being a part of this elect body that has been given this mission collectively. Now, yes, does that apply in an individual sense? Yes, but the focus is on who we are in Christ and how we're collectively known as the body of Christ under his headship. So when I think about foreknowledge, this would speak to those that see more of an individual aspect to this. While God's foreknowledge allowed him to know in advance who would believe or trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it did not interfere with man's ability to accept or reject the salvation freely offered or predetermine a specific outcome. God did not predetermine whether you could or couldn't be saved. He left that choice squarely up to you. Each 
individual person is fully responsible and without excuse as it relates to his or her individual choice, you have a decision to make about Jesus Christ. When you hear the gospel presented in the New Testament, it is always presented in the context of will you believe or will you not believe? It is never, never presented in the context of are you elect or are you not elect? You could you could possibly believe this or you might not be able to believe this. I'm talking to you here today about Jesus Christ, but I may be wasting my time because you may not even be capable of responding to this message. You will never see the gospel message presented that way in the New Testament. It's always presented with a view towards God has a desire that all men would be saved And that he wants the gospel to be presented to all men because all who will, let them come. Anyone who makes a decision to accept Jesus Christ could be saved. The the discussion is not that they weren't chosen. The discussion is that they love darkness rather than light. That they choose to reject the message of the gospel. That's the focus of what is causing man to be lost or continue to be lost. It's not, it never focuses on this idea that the reason they're lost is because they were never chosen to begin with. Again, you'd have to, you'd have to step around a lot of scripture. We're going to get to a whole bunch more. So if you're getting tired of it, hey, buckle up. Now, as you think about this word for, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, it's normally translated into or unto salvation. He chose you into salvation or unto salvation, meaning he chose that everybody who would put their trust in Christ again had access to the salvation that was available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of this word salvation, I want to be clear that it refers to the entire package. It's the entire salvific package. It's not just, he's not just referring to salvation from sin's penalty as the Bible calls that justification. He's also talking about salvation in the sense of sanctification, positional sanctification, practical sanctification. He chose to save everybody who would put their trust in Jesus Christ, not just from the penalty of their sin. God chose in his eternal plan, remember we're talking about eternity past and eternal plan, he determined, made a decision to provide salvation. Remember this is about reconciliation, reconciling and redeeming those who were estranged from God. He chose to save them from every facet of bondage or influence, not influence, oh yeah, in the future influence, of sin in their lives. So the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and then the influence or presence of sin when we talk about glorification. This idea that God determined or planned or elected in advance, he had this plan. We talk about pre, pre, uh, predestination. That's what we're talking about. God planned in advance. But he planned in advance to address every aspect of man's need, his past need, to deal with the penalty that he was facing for a sin that would estrange him forever in the lake of fire from God unless something was done to satisfy the debt that was owed. He satisfied that debt. So part of this discussion is he satisfied that debt by sending Jesus Christ to pay that debt to become sin for us even though he, he knew no sense that we could be made right with God. He imputed his righteousness to our negative account the moment we would accept this gift that Jesus Christ offered of eternal life through his sacrifice on our behalf. Apart from our human works, apart from our rituals, apart from anything that we could do. Now we're, we have, we're given access to, we have God's Christ's righteousness now credited to our account. And so he dealt with that. But then he also dealt with the 
control that we were under, the bondage we were in to the sin nature, and he gave us victory over that. So salvation in a sanctification sense, uh, positionally we were viewed by God as set apart the moment we put our trust in Christ. But now practically God is providing an undertaking through the power of his spirit working in our life for us to live set apart godly lives. Not through our own strength, but through his provision for our victory over the power of sin in our lives. And then he's also provided for us to finally have freedom from the very presence of sin one day in glory as we experience glorification in its final stage, or or however you would want to put that. So when we think about the salvation that God is being thanked for, God chose you for salvation, you being those that have made a decision to put their trust in Jesus Christ. He chose all of you collectively for this complete, full package salvation that God can offer. Now, how is that general salvation plan realized on a personal level? So if God chooses to save everybody who in the past, if in the past God chose to save everybody in the future who would choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ, what does that look like? How is that realized? How, how does a person get in on that? Well, there's two specific means that are identified here by the use of the word through. He chose you for or unto or into salvation through. Through what now? Now, this section illustrates perfectly the balance between God's sovereignty and man's free will. This is what biblical scholars have struggled with. This is why we have so much disagreement is some, t- some people put all of the emphasis on man's responsibility. Like man needs to save himself apart from God's intervention. That's not true. Or they would say, man can't save himself. I need to stay over here. This same group, this same group would say, man, they may acknowledge God, man can't save themselves, they need God's help, but then man needs to preserve or maintain what God started. Th- that's putting too much focus on what? on man's responsibility. Come all the way over here and then there's a group that puts all of the emphasis on God's sovereignty. And the group that says that God selected individuals in eternity past to be saved apart from their own volitional choice, he selected, he predetermined the outcome of who would be saved and who wouldn't be saved. That's not the kind of God I want to worship, just, just to clarify. A God who would so randomly just say, I'm going to save some, I don't know, they haven't, there's, there's no particular reason one way or the other, but I'm going to save some and not others. But in any event, this group puts all of the, they slide the scale all the way to God's sovereignty and they say, God chose who would be saved. God makes it impossible for them to not be saved. God guarantees that they'll be saved. God, 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 God. Well, it's true that God is the one who makes it possible, but the Bible doesn't speak about a God who forces himself on people. You never read the story if you think that's true. The story says man is given an opportunity day in and day out to trust God, starting with trusting God for their salvation from the penalty of their sin, trusting God's solution to deal with the hopeless condition that they were in apart from God's loving intervention. Then the whole story talks about man after man after man, woman after woman after woman, who day in and day out is confronted with the opportunity to either lean on God's provision, to trust God with their whole heart, to allow God to lead, to put all of their eggs in the basket of depending on God to do for them what they could never do for themselves, or 
try to do it themselves. Operate independent from God. It then tells you what happens when you will trust God. You get to thrive. You get to grow. You will get to experience the kind of life that God planned for his children. It also tells you what happens with each person each time they decide to do this apart from God. It's a train wreck, a dumpster fire. Come on, you guys know. You've been there, right? That's the story of this book. It's not a story about God forcing mankind into a particular outcome and saving them against their will and sanctifying them against their will and glorifying them against their will. Now, to some extent, that could be true in the sense that he says, every single one who puts their faith in my son is born into my family and I will glorify them. So I guess you could come to a point in your life where you wished you weren't saved anymore, didn't want to be saved anymore, and you were going to get glorified against your will. Won't you feel goofy? (laughs) That's going to be awkward. I can tell you that right now, and I know many of them. I know many who have turned away from the faith. Doesn't mean they're not God's children anymore. That's not what his word says. He says, though, they, though you are faithless, I remain faithful still. I cannot deny myself. God, God says, I'm the one who sealed you. You didn't seal yourself. I sealed you with my Holy Spirit. He says, I will never let you go. Nothing can separate you from my love. And nothing, guess what? The words mean, they have meaning. Nothing means nothing. Nothing can separate you. But how weird and awkward is that going to be? Don't be that person that's standing before the Lord and you're like, ah, I didn't want to be in heaven. (laughs) How goof. (laughs) We're practically doing that, by the way. You're laughing, but we're practically doing that in many facets of our lives. God is saying, you're my child. I want to transform you into something different. And we're saying, ah, I don't want that. That would be too good. I like to live life in misery. This is awesome. This is great. Just look at how happy I am. Look at all the stuff I have. I must be happy, right? I digress. So we have this perfect balance now between God's sovereignty and man's free will and it's described in two ways here. The first part is God's part. Sanctification by the Spirit. Now this represents or reflects God's initiative in promoting salvation. Remember that God desires that all men be saved by believing in the truth. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And here's some verses that you're going to really have to stick handle around if you, if you want to believe that God predetermined who would be saved through no choice of their own. They didn't have to accept it. They didn't have to put their confidence in it, in Jesus Christ. They didn't have to make a decision. He determined this by selecting some and rejecting others. That's not what he says his will is. If that was God's eternal plan, then it would be a representation of his will. God never would have made a plan that was incompatible with his will. So if his will was that only some would be saved, then you could say, yeah, that makes sense. I only wanted some to be saved. So I I came up with a plan that determined or guaranteed that some would be saved and some wouldn't. But that's not what God's, the Bible doesn't say that is God's will. God's will is that what? He desires all men to be saved. Not some, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How do we get saved? By putting our trust in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. So 
you have that passage you would have to ignore. Now, this likely refers primarily to the initial positional setting apart of every believer. When we're talking about positionally, God's part in this was that he was going to set apart he was going to sanctify or view now as holy every believer because, they're identif- because of their identification with Jesus Christ. Now, why do I think the primary focus here is positional? Because in the context, verses 5 through 11, Paul was describing or he was contrasting now these believers and their future destiny with the judgment and condemnation that was facing the unbelievers he was discussing in verses 5 through 11. So now he's talking about they're set apart. Positionally, they're set apart by the work of the Spirit of God and that's a very different outcome or destiny that they're facing in, in contrast to the condemnation and the judgment that is facing those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Now, how does the Spirit facilitate or initiate that? How does the Spirit facilitate this positional identification with Jesus Christ or this positional setting apart? Well, we see this, and one of the ways is that the Spirit of God is convincing men or convicting men of their sins so they would see their need for a Savior. Jesus says these words in John 16, 8 through 9. He says, and when he, and when he the Holy Spirit, has come, Jesus is talking, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and of sin because they do not believe in me. God's always talking in the, concept, in the context of some believe in me and some don't. Not some were chosen and some weren't. Some believe and some don't. He's not saying they couldn't. He's saying they choose not to. They don't. So as you think about this and you go a little bit farther with it, man needs to first see his need for Christ. So that's what we mean about the convicting man of sin. Why is that so important? How is God using that to bring about the salvation of mankind? Because to set us apart, man has to first see that they have a problem, that they have a need. And by seeing that they have a need or that they have a problem, God then can undertake, having convinced you that all mankind stands guilty before God, that you need him to intervene on your behalf because you're hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from him. Now, what's the second part of this? The second part speaks to man's part. Belief in the truth. So we have sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. They're not one thing. They're two separate things. This is why we find a biblical balance here between God's initiation, God's pursuing us, God desiring that men would be saved, but man having to make a decision for themselves. Your faith in what is true. See, God did not choose or call believers so they could believe. He called them through or by means of their belief in the truth that they had heard proclaimed. It's your faith in what is true. Your belief in the truth is how God calls you to salvation. It's because you believe. That's how God is undertaking to call believers to himself. It's through the preaching of the truth so that you could then respond appropriately. See, the Bible repeatedly proclaims that man is saved by faith apart from works. Becoming a part of the group God chose to save is available to everyone who believes what God says is true about Jesus Christ. Now, who is the group that God chose to save? Everyone who would choose to believe in Jesus Christ. How do you get a hold of that? You have to believe what God says is true about Jesus Christ. Are you sure that anyone could get a hold of this? I thought only an elect group of people who were selected in eternity past could ever get saved. Well, if you believe that, then what are we going to do with words like whosoever? John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever means anyone. Anyone could be a whosoever. You could be a whosoever if you would put your trust and believe 
in what Jesus Christ did for you. It doesn't say anything about being elect or chosen for salvation. It's saying that God chose to save everybody who would choose to believe in the truth about his son, that his son was the savior of the world, the final substitute for man's sinfulness. How about Revelation twenty-two seventeen? And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, what are we talking about that? Man's free choice, man's decision-making. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That is not the language of God forcing himself on people. Whosoever will makes a determination that they're going to trust in this. Let them take it. The gift is being offered and extended to every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. The question is, will you take it? Now, you have to take it freely, meaning it had to be freely given, but it has to be freely received or it couldn't be a gift. You've got to quit trying to work for it. You have to quit trying to think that you're playing some part in this. Your part is to accept, make a decision about Jesus Christ. You want more passages? In Acts 17, 30 through 31, Paul's talking. He's giving a speech here to a bunch of Gentiles. This isn't written to Jewish people. It's a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, truly these times of ignorance, he's summarizing kind of the history of mankind. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men, how many men? All men everywhere to repent. The word metanoia, Greek word for repent here, means to change your mind. Change your mind about what? about Jesus Christ, the truth that you've been confronted with about Jesus Christ. Will you change your mind about that? And then it, it goes on further. How about this passage, Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish. If God had already determined that people would perish because he didn't select them in eternity past, he couldn't say this. He's not willing that any should perish. But how many should come to repentance? All would come to repentance. Again, what does that word mean? A change of mind, a change of heart. They've come to a place where they're no longer trusting themselves, their rituals, their human efforts, their church. They're not trusting in the fact that they can look around and find a few people who seem worse than them. They're putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Christ's death, it was intended to draw all men to himself. Sadly, many refuse. And if you want to see that about that being the purpose of Christ being lifted up, you can find it in John 12, 32. It talks about that Christ is drawing all men to himself by the fact that he was lifted up. He's saying that's why, he, it says he was speaking about the manner of his death. That as he was lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. Does that mean all men come to him? No, but he's seeking to draw all men to some extent to himself. Unfortunately, many are not willing to accept Jesus Christ. This isn't universalism in the sense that all people are going to get saved. What, what, we're believing, what we believe is that God made it possible for all men to be saved as a part of a decision that each one would have to make. And the decision was, will you respond to the truth that you're being presented with about who Jesus is and what he's done? It's that simple. You either accept it or you will reject it, but it, it's going to be you who's to blame, not some cosmic lottery that took place where God never chose you to begin with. That's not what that means. That's a misunderstanding of what we're talking about when we talk about election. And if you don't, oh, I did have it on, on, on here. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. No, that's completely wrong too. Okay, that's, a, that's still Second Peter 3, 9. 
It was John 3, 18 through 19 that I wanted to draw your attention to. It says, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Does that sound like the language of people who have no choice? No, this is the language of people who chose not to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the language of people who chose darkness over light. This isn't the language of God already determined this outcome. Here you have this passage about man having to make this choice. Everybody is able to, but not everyone will. This is my favorite passage, in fact, that completely, as far as I'm concerned, disproves a view that God pre-selected people for salvation against their will and they have no choice in it at all. That it's only, they, they, they're not, that some people aren't even capable of believing. Here's John 5, 38 through 40. Jesus is talking to religious and self-righteous people and he says, but you do not have his word abiding in you. He's talking to Pharisees, the most religious people of, of the day. The reason you don't have his word abiding in you is because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Not because you weren't chosen, not because you weren't pre-selected for salvation, but you don't believe in the one that God the Father sent, Jesus Christ. You search the scriptures, so you're, you have good intentions, for in them you think you will have eternal life. But the scriptures are the things that are testifying about me, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. He says this, this is, this is the issue. The issue isn't that they weren't predetermined or pre-selected, pre-chosen. The issue is that, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Written right into this text is that you could, the alternative is clearly in view here, you could have had life, but you would have had to be what? You would have had to be willing to come to me. This is the language of human choice. This isn't the language of God's sovereignty and God forcing an outcome on you. And you think about responding to that truth. The reason that these people were saved is because, in part, there is, they were sanctified by the Spirit, the working of the Spirit of God, God's effort to draw men to himself, God's effort to convict men of their sin, God's provision of a way of rescue in the personal work of his Jesus Christ, but also... Also, man's belief in the truth. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does that involve? It involves believing the truth that is presented to you about who? About Jesus Christ. Now, as we finish this passage, it says, to which he called you. Now, we're talking about what? Salvation. To the salvation he called you by what? By the gospel, our gospel, he's talking about our message of the truth of Jesus Christ. For what purpose? For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think primarily talking about position here, but we're going to see he also obviously, you can't separate position from application. You can't separate it from practice. Practically, you had this mission too of one glorifying God and being glorified by God. Being glorifying Christ and being glorified in Christ. But here, I believe he's still talking about position primarily because then he's going to segue into the practical application of it in the next two verses. So when we think about the gospel, the biblical salvific, as you think about the salvation sequence as it's presented in God's word, it is always this way. 
It is always mankind hears the truth about Jesus Christ and mankind either believes that truth or rejects that truth. Never is the sequence presented in in a consistent way throughout the Bible. You're not going to find the sequence sounding like this. Man was pre-selected by salvation against his will with no part of his own. God chose him for salvation and then man is forced into salvation at some point in his life. No, it's the gospel message salvation was made available to all men. Men hear the truth of the gospel and men have a choice to make. Either they'll believe it or they'll reject it. All the time as you go through the New Testament, that's the sequence that you're going to find. So you think about obtaining. What are we talking about here? Obtaining something. Acquiring something in a secure and permanent manner. That's another reason why I think the primary focus here is on the positional identification with the glory of Jesus Christ. I get in on that the moment I was saved. I'm now not seen in light of my sin. I'm seen in light of my Savior and the glory that He has. Now, when you think about this word for glory, it refers to the brightness, to a brightness or quality of emanating beautiful and bright light. A quality of emitting beautiful and bright light. You obtained, you secured in a permanent manner this Christ-like quality of emitting beautiful and bright light. Now, I'd never seen that definition of glory before. That is what my Greek uh, study software says the definition for that Greek word is. The quality of emitting beautiful and bright light. You got in on that. You obtained that and secured that quality through your identification with Jesus Christ. That was positionally true of you. So then when you think about all the passages about Christ being the light of the world, he came that you would have life. But he, it says, uh, in him was life and the life was the what? Light of men. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. What will have as a present possession the light of life. We acquired this quality of Jesus Christ through identification with him of emitting a beautiful and bright light so then he'll get to the practical side of what that would look like so then he says so let your light shine before men that they the unbelievers may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven other people i guess it wouldn't have to just be unbelievers he says you were once darkness but you are now light in the lord walk as children of the light but how did you get in on that to begin with because you responded to the gospel That's what led to your salvation and it was because you made a choice to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So obtaining the glory of Christ. Faith in Christ results in every believer acquiring things positionally he never had before. And as a believer, you are now positionally identified with Jesus Christ's glory. Do you ever consider the magnitude of that inherited position? That's what Paul is thanking God for always, for these believers, that they inherited this, this glorified position through their identification with Christ. Do you feel obliged to thank God always for what you already have in Christ? Do you desire to live in light of that glorified position? Do you desire to be a reflection of the light of Jesus? That's what Paul's thanking God for. That's what he's saying. I thank God that you are that positionally. Now, next week, he's going to talk about some of the practical implications of that. Kids, I apologize to you. I'm sorry. That was long. That was complicated. That probably went over your head to some extent. But nonetheless, we don't 
we don't pick which ones we come to. We've been going through Paul's prayers. Some people talk about, you know, expository teaching. This is expository teaching. You're picking a passage. You're not stick handling around it. You're dealing with it. You're teaching through it. You're thinking about it. We happen to be doing a series of different passages that collectively make up Paul's prayers, but we're digging into each one, comparing Scripture with Scripture, looking at every word in an expository kind of a way. Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper for you young people I know that's part of why we're doing this twice a year is having you sit in the audience or a couple of times a year so that you can be a part of celebrating the Lord's Supper. You can kind of see what your parents endure. You can be thankful that you get to go to Sunday school. But a part of it all is also that you don't get to see what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So what is the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper is simple. God says, as he left the, the earth, Jesus said, I want to, you to remember my death until I come back again. I want you to remember my body that was broken for you. So we have these different cracker-like things that are unleavened. They're, they don't taste that good. They don't have any leaven in them. There's no salt on them. So. But he says this wafer that can crack easily, I want you as you break bread. Now, they weren't breaking these, these wafers. They were celebrating the Passover. But the unleavened bread that they had, they were taking chunks off it. And as they were tearing it apart, he was saying, I want you when you see that happening... I I want you to remember my death, my body that was being broken for you. Then he said he looked at them because they were having an actual meal. It wasn't this sort of ceremony. You know, we do this in kind of a... uh, a traditional way here. Uh, They weren't doing it that. It was very informal. They were sitting around a table. They were having a meal together. And he said to them, when you do this, as often as you do it, when you're sitting around celebrating the, pass, the, this, the Passover or you're celebrating a meal even together, you could think about the symb- symbolism of tearing bread apart and how my body was torn apart because I loved you so much. He then says, when you drink that wine, it looks like blood, doesn't it? And he said, you could symbolically remember my blood which was shed for you every time you do this. But he says, as often as you do this, he says to do it in remembrance of me. So you could be thinking about my death, burial, and resurrection for you. So kids, if you haven't seen this before, it's nothing mystical. It's nothing, it's nothing that is too hard to understand. It's that there's these two things that are meant to picture what Jesus went through because he loved us so much. And so if you're a believer, this is an opportunity to be intentional about remembering Christ's death for you. And so the Bible says don't do that in a way that's unworthy, don't, don't do that with unconfessed sin in your heart. Sit here for a second and just say, Lord, I haven't been trusting you, haven't been walking with you. I haven't been letting you be a part of my life. I haven't been doing, I saying and doing the kinds of things that you would direct me to do through your spirit. I haven't been even interested in you very much. Help me to change my thinking and, and refocus my gaze, fix my gaze on you so that you could then celebrate this in a way which would actually be kind of celebratory. Now, if it's a remembrance of something that Christ did for you and you're an unbeliever here this morning, you've never put your trust in what Christ did for you, just let this go by because it would be pretty pointless for you to pretend to celebrate something that you've never even trusted or accepted. So if this hasn't ever made sense to you and you still don't get it, and I just zoomed over your head even this morning, that's fine. Come back. Keep coming back. Guess what? We're going to keep talking about Jesus and his love. And so we'll talk about it some more. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe, maybe I could clarify some things for you. But there'd be no point to pretend to celebrate something you don't understand or you've never trusted in. So just let it go by. But there's nothing more to this. 
Many churches try to turn it into something that somehow this is going to save you. No, it's for people who are already a part of God's family so that they can celebrate what he's done for them in the past and they can remember and never forget how much God loves them. At this point, I'd ask whoever's going to help with communion to come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper.